Hello, hi everyone. Welcome to the seventh uh, week of uh, the University of Nicosia's uh, free MOOC on uh, NFTs and the Metaverse. Uh, this is George Yaglis, and today our topic of discussion is going to be uh, gaming NFT. So we're going to be discussing uh, gaming today. Uh, so today's session, uh, I would dare say it's it's sort of a bridging session because as, as you know, this is a 12-week course. Uh, we've done, we've covered the first six weeks, which were about NFTs. So we did an introduction and we saw the various use cases and application areas of non-fungible uh, tokens. And as of next week, we're going to move to the second part of the course, which is more about Web3 and the metaverse. And uh, today's session is sort of transitory, sort of trying to bridge these two uh, areas in the sense that it is my personal feeling that uh, many people will uh, will uh, will first experience uh, the metaverse through some sort of uh, a game so i'd like to to spend some time today discussing the various types of games the history of gaming how do nfts fit with uh, with the future of uh, of gaming and how these could uh, uh, like facilitate a transition to a more immersive, more persistent uh, digital experience for everyone, what we we usually define as, as uh, the metaverse. Uh, so we will start by going through a short history of video games, how it all started. I'm not going to, it's, it's totally impossible to cover everything, of course, but I'll try to go through the major milestones uh, trying to, to, to give you a perspective uh, in the sense that where we are today and where we're probably heading tomorrow in terms of our gaming experiences is something that is very compatible with what has happened so far. And uh, although we might sometimes tend to think of you know blockchains and NFTs as a hugely dis disruptive experience, I think it's somehow the natural next step in the evolution of gaming. Uh, we'll discuss a little bit uh, the process of creating games, uh, not because I want to turn any of you into uh, gaming designer production experts. Again, we cannot do this in the short uh, time of one session, but because I think it is uh, important to understand the various dimensions so that we can see why existing blockchain-based games and uh, why existing gaming NFTs uh, have still not managed to live up to their expectations. So the, the complexities and intricacies of the process of creating games uh, make it quite difficult. We will discuss the main types of, of benefits uh, that blockchains bring into gaming, namely the ability to facilitate real ownership of game assets for the players, the ability to transfer uh, assets between games and to create an interoperable in-game or across-game uh, economy. Uh, we'll discuss a little bit play to earn. Again, not trying to, to, to do an ex exhaustive review. Uh, this is everything that we're discussing are still phenomena that are under development so we're just going to see where, where where we are today and uh what the potential next steps might be 
and maybe talk a little bit about the size of the, of the market uh, in game. As usual, our disclaimer, this is educational uh, material only. So although I will be referencing a number of projects uh, in, the, in this presentation, none of them is uh, included for anything else apart from as, a, uh, as, as an indicative example for educational purposes. So please do your own research if you decide to uh, delve more in depth into any of the projects that are mentioned in this course. So let's start with uh, with the first like argument that I'd like to make, uh, and the argument, as I've said, is that games can be thought of as very early examples of metaverses. So those of you that in the audience that are already gamers know what I'm talking about because you know that many of the uh, MMORPGs that exist out there look and feel like uh, what most of us think about as, as the metaverse. Uh, obviously, with a very specific like setting of the virtual world and a very specific objective and uh, gameplay and uh, the types of things that are happening are not like a virtual world as a whole. It's a very specific, narrow virtual world, but a virtual world nevertheless. So I think, as I've said, that games are can be thought of as proto-metaverses, so very early um, examples of a metaverse. And I think many of us are going to experience the metaverse through games. Uh, I like this definition of what a game is. I mean, I'm not really sure that we need the definition, but uh, nevertheless, it's, it's always good to start with a common perspective. Like a game is an interactive experience, so it's something that is uh, between uh, players or between a player and a computer. And it's an experience that provides a player with an increasingly challenging sequence of patterns, which the player learns and eventually masters. So most of the games uh, will make the player go through a series of, uh, I don't know, uh, steps, tasks, uh, challenges, or whatever that are of increasing uh, uh, difficulty until either the player loses or the game concludes with some successful uh, end. Some, some, some games have an end objective, others you still you continue playing for as long as you can and there's never you know, a, 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 a natural finish, a successful finish to, to, uh, to the game. So according to this definition, you can think of visual of video games as having three main components. One is a user interface, so the player needs to somehow interact with the game, and usually this would happen through a console, you know, a joystick, a controller, some some sort of uh, motion sensing device, or or what have you. There needs to be a video display device. Early on, it might be our TV, now a computer monitor, tomorrow maybe a virtual reality headset, but there needs to be something that shows us the virtual world through which we we, uh, uh, we traverse while we're playing the game. And there needs to be a storyline. There needs to be a setting. There needs to be a context. There needs to be a virtual world on which the action of the game takes place. And if you think about it, the combination of these three things, so having a virtual world out there, a virtual world that is displayed in some sort of uh, output device, which could be immersive. It could be a virtual reality headset. Plus the ability to interact, live, and do things 
within this world sounds a bit like what the metaverse would be about. I mean, we'll formally define the metaverse uh, next week, but I think most of us would agree that you know a virtual world in which we we exist as 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 a character and do things and receive feedback and uh, interact with other players or with the virtual world is what the metaverse is all about. That's why I'm saying that the video games can be thought of as sort of metaverse type of, of experiences. The history of, of video games is, is quite old. I mean, beginning of the 70s with uh, things like Zork, uh, for those of you that uh, are into uh, text-based uh, adventure games, or with uh, arcades like Pong, which was the first uh, ping-pong-themed um, uh, arcade game. And you see here on the right the, the type of game that I'm talking about. But remember, this is 1972, where 10 years uh, before the introduction of the personal computer. So this is a very, very proto uh, type of experience in, a, um, in, a, in an arcade type of, of interface where you have very simple uh, two-dimensional graphics, effectively two, uh, uh, two players or one player and, and the computer uh, each controlling uh, a dash that moves up uh, and down a screen, and there's a ball uh, moving in between. And you know, if if you if you manage to catch the ball and, and throw it to your opponent, then uh, the game continues. If you don't, then you lose a point, and this is how it all thing it all goes. Uh, Pong was developed by Atari, uh, one of the very famous. Um, uh, game and computer developers of the 70s and the, and the 80s. Atari uh, has a very special place in my heart, along with uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Commodore and the ZX uh, Spectrum and, and all these computers, because these were the first types of computers that I interacted with. So um, uh, Atari is a legend in the early uh, computer gaming era. Uh, Pong was a very interesting game. It was created by a guy called uh, Alan Alcorn, and it was not created to be a commercial game. It was created as a training exercise given to Alan by his boss, uh, one of the Atari's co-founder, uh, Nolan Bushel, Bushnell. Uh, so uh, Alan did such a great job that Atari thought, wow, we gave this as an exercise, but there's probably a, a, uh, an opportunity here to, to commercialize they, this. So they did. And they commercialized it like this. Uh, when we're talking about games in the 70s, this is the setting that we're talking about. Uh, standalone, special-made, uh, you know, whole cupboards that uh, included a screen and a um, and some controls. As you can see here on the left, there are two controls for the two players that are playing pong, and there's a coin uh, inserting machine. Uh, so. You would go to a to a mall, to a supermarket, to a to a to, to a shop that had arcade games, and you would play this game for for money. There were no computers. There were no there was no way in which you could do this at home. Uh, the big um, uh, revolution and the big advancement in in gaming uh, was when we made the transition from from arcade to console. So when computer games started becoming home entertainment. Again, from the 1970s, you can see on the right a picture of two, two kids playing the same game. This is Pong now, but now they're playing it at home. 
in a console which is uh, connected to the to, to the home computer. Uh, this the fact that games entered our home created an explosion in the types of uh, of games. So there are, I mean, nearly countless genres of game today. Uh, games would most typically be categorized uh, according to the interaction uh, and the gameplay. So we have adventure games or fighting games or puzzle games or shooter games or sports uh, and so on. Uh, and another big uh, distinction is whether we're talking about first person or third person games. So like in the, in the, in the picture that you see there on, uh, on your left, uh, you are the, the 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 character holding the the machine gun but you never see your actual avatar you never see your um, uh, your character the whole world uh, revolves around your your own point of view in the third person games like the example uh, we see on the right you control a character that you can see in front of you and you see how he or she might interact with with their environment Another way of classifying games could be according to their dimensionality. So we have 2D games, the early examples of games where we uh, like had very crude graphics, both for the avatars and for the uh, surrounding world. So Super Mario, as you can see there on the left, is an example of such a game. And I'm not trying here to make an argument that says that you know two-dimensional games are you know worse than 3D games, they are just older and there's a different um, type of modality of interacting with the virtual world. And I'm saying this because, I don't know, I, may, I might be proven wrong here, but contrary to what most people uh, expect uh, or predict, I think there's going to be a sizable market for metaverses in the beginning, at least, of the you know commercial era of the metaverse, where the world around us would be deliberately simple. So everything in a computer is anyway a model of reality, and we can uh, we can decide what type of abstraction we want to to have against that reality. So many designers and producers and providers and many users, I think, would choose to go to simpler models where they can focus more on the social interaction rather than be consumed by the you know the elaborate uh, details of the worlds around them but that's 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 one possible direction and some people will uh, will take that path others might choose to go to more realistic photorealistic i mean games so we have uh, 3D games now, like uh, the image that you see on, on your right, where uh, the your view of the world is essentially a 3D camera perspective, either first person or third person, as we discussed. And there are, you know, some games in between these two, like the the, the, the image from the middle from uh, Wolfenstein, which was, you know, the first the game that popularized the the, the, the shooting games uh, genre where there was a sort of a pseudo 3D environment in the sense that everything was in reality 2D. There were no 3D models there, 
but uh, the uh, the use of uh, two-dimensional sprites creating the the created the impression to users that they were seeing a three-dimensional uh, world. Now, the most important uh, distinction of games, most important for the purposes of this uh, lecture, because again, I'm trying to make a point that would lead us to NFTs and Web3, is that most video games would be classified as we what we call RPGs, right? Uh, Role-playing games, in the sense that when you play the game, you assume the role of a character and you take control of the actions by of, of that character okay so most of the video games are rpgs one subgenre of rpgs that became popular especially in the 80s and beginning of 90s what we would was what we would call a multi-user dimension uh, originally it was called multi-user dungeon uh, or, or multi-user domain games it became popular with the acronym mud anyway uh, dungeon because it started from from adventure games that used to take place in worlds characterized by dungeons, and the the the, the distinguishing characteristic of these games what they were the, was that they were typically text based or storyboarded. So there were not elaborate graphics. Sometimes there were no graphics at all. A player would enter a a world which was usually fantasy or science fiction inspired world. And they would receive text-based descriptions. So you are now in, in, in the forest, you see you know a house in front of you. This was a typical like introduction to, 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 to Zork, one of the first text-based adventure games. But the distinguishing characteristics of MUDs was that they were multi multiplayer. There were many players uh, that could play the game at the same time, and they could have either an adversarial or a collaborative relationship between them, depending on the game and, and how, how it works. So sometimes you would, you know, be there to, to kill other players uh, or uh, to, to, to cooperate with them in order to achieve some objective. And this sounds sort of like, you know, uh, trivial today, but it was far from trivial back then, the ability to create worlds that would accommodate many users. So. Mud was uh, the, the mud types of games were were the the first games that uh, created an internet type of experience for the users back then in the early 90s. Many many people back then discovered what we call today the internet, so a, a worldwide connected network of computers through playing such kinds of games. But because of you know bandwidth or technology limitations, uh, these games were usually very limited in terms of their graphical interfaces. Now, RPGs and MUDs came together and evolved in what today we would uh, call uh, MMORPGs or massively multiplayer online drone playing games, which are video games. Here we're talking now about virtual worlds that have, uh, you know, a very significant graphical uh, interface, sometimes with a very high degree of uh, photorealism and allow a massive number of players i mean i'm talking uh, in the in the um uh, in the range of even millions of players to play the game uh, at the same time 
another distinguishing characteristic of these games, and this is a characteristic that is very important for us, is that these games feature what we would call persistent worlds. In other words, we're talking about games where if you as a player stop playing the game, the game still continues to exist, other players are there, the world evolves, things happen, so next time you go back online, you might find a very different environment because things have happened while you were away. And this is something that, okay, for the younger people here that, uh, you know, the first types of games uh, that they got used to were MMORPGs, might sound like a natural thing, but but for us, it's, it's, it's a total revolution. It was a total revolution because previous types of games existed only as far as long as I was playing them. The moment that I stopped playing the game, when you know I got offline or when I got the game over sign, the, the game didn't exist. The, the world stopped existing. It, it came into existence and it stopped being there uh, when I entered and when I stopped playing the game. MMORPGs are the first example of persistent worlds. And as we will be discussing next week, because persistence is a very important defining characteristic of the metaverse i would say that uh, you know most early metaverses that we will see enjoying some type of real commercial success in the sense of having uh, many users in them will feature some sort of game like uh, persistency in the in the experience of the users uh now these games have become hugely popular. Those of you that uh, uh, play such games know that already. For those of you that, you know, all these are, are new, there are games like World of Warcraft, where the total player count, the people that have accounts play that game, uh, are like, you know, in the, in the hundreds of millions, and there might be more than a million people playing the game at the same time. Uh, around the world. So we're talking about a really, really popular, really successful and mass-adopted games in, the, uh, in their respective communities. And this has resulted naturally in gaming being a huge industry. I mean, I come from, you know, I come from a blockchain and crypto type of, of background uh, into this course. So uh, uh, for me, you know, the fact that uh, you know the whole crypto industry is worth around a trillion is like you know mind blowing, hugely successful. But we're talking here about an industry in which you know there are the, the number of cryptocurrency users are measured in the in the in the hundreds of thousands or millions around the world. Here we're talking about an industry in which. Almost half the world, more than 3.2 billion people worldwide, play some sort of computer game. Many of these people play MMORPGs, but not only that. And uh, there's a very uh, aggressively growing esport uh, uh, industry uh, where the audiences uh, have grown to uh, more than a half a billion people in 2022. So if you think about it, Almost one every two persons in the whole world are playing games, and around once in 16 people 
are watching video games being played competitively by other players. So this is a huge industry and if it somehow makes the transition to the to 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 web3 it's going to be you know a killer app for 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 blockchains for web3 and for nfts in general uh the global gaming market is projected to be worth more than 250 billion uh dollars by 2025 so we're talking about a huge industry uh there's you know console based uh, marketplaces where you can uh, get uh, games like nintendo or playstation or microsoft xbox and stuff like that uh, a whole industry of course in mobile games ios uh, uh, google play for android and so on a huge number of websites and a huge number of platforms that uh, provide access to to gaming uh to desktop computers of which i think steam is the largest they they support around seventy thousand uh gaming titles uh the industry is huge and it's being dominated by players that come from from all backgrounds so you see uh, technology companies like microsoft uh, you see consumer electronics companies like sony you see game studios like uh, i don't know uh, electronic arts and, and games like roblox uh, being in the top 10 of of the gaming industry and you see the top 10 uh, companies have market caps that range from uh, tens of billions of dollars to to okay microsoft has a huge market cap but it's not only gaming uh, so we're talking about a very very big industry that might make the transition towards web web3 in the coming years now this this was a very quick like introduction to the history of gaming and how we uh, uh, we have arrived where we are today with nft games but before discussing this i'd like to spend just a few minutes uh discussing uh game development so the games that you saw a couple of uh uh, static images from uh, in the previous slides, like I don't know, World of Warcraft or Minecraft or, or similar types of games, are very very complex competitive projects to uh, to develop. They need huge teams of engineers, of artists, of designers, and for, of producers to be coordinated and to be to be able to. Uh, create something that is not a one-off thing. It's not like you know a Hollywood movie where you might also need a similar type of of, of array of people coming together and coordinating themselves uh, for a limited amount of time until the, the the movie gets out to to theaters and then that's it. Here we're talking about an ongoing process of always uh, you know improving, developing, and evolving the game while the game is being played and especially in the game in the case of mmorpgs you need to be able to deploy uh like uh, upgrades in real time while millions of people are using the product so we're talking about a very complex endeavor and i'm i'm saying this because i want i want you and i want people like me also to be a bit lenient uh when it comes to judging the the gameplay the design and the uh, the general complexity and, and sophistication of blockchain based that uh, games that we see around us 
because we're trying to compare what huge companies with billions of dollars of market cap and thousands of employees are able to produce uh, after you know 10 or 15 years in the industry with what uh, a team of uh, you know five or ten startups uh, might be doing in a whole new technology with uh, whole new types of assets like fungible or non-fungible tokens and sometimes i see reports saying you know yeah but none of these games are fun to play uh, or, uh, you know, uh, sophisticated enough or whatever. What did you expect? Did you expect that, you know, a team of, of people that uh, have just released a, a game that there's no uh, trodden path and there's no prior learning or whatever would be able to achieve anything close to what a very sophisticated professional uh, uh, public uh, company making billions of dollars uh, is, is is producing. I, I mean, it, it 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 sort of it sort of expected that you would see the types of games that we see in the in the blockchain and the crypto world today. So anyway, coming back to the team, you would need engineers, obviously, and not only people that would actually code and program the software, but especially when we're talking about console-based games, uh, also people that would design and manufacture and uh, uh, integrate the hardware on which the software will be uh, uh, running. You would need a huge array of artists because you would need people that would define the concept, what is the game vision, the storyline and everything. You would need people that would do the 3D modeling of everything within the virtual world, the environment, the characters, the assets. You would need texture artists that would add um, uh, textures and details to the 3D models created by the, by the modelers. You would need people that would uh, spend their time working on lighting and motion capture and sound and all these things. If you if you uh, attended and watched the discussion of uh, 6529 with people uh, the other day, you would uh, you, you might remember how much time and energy people was uh, telling us that uh, he, he, he's spending when he's creating his digital art, not in actual you know uh, modeling um, or, or customizing the models that he starts working from but actually sculpting or photographing or uh, playing with the lightning, the lighting around these, these objects that uh, he creates. So you would need designers, you would need people to design the, the mechanics of the gameplay, to design the modalities of uh, player interaction and so forth. And you need a production team that would actually bring everything together, would deal with this as a project with uh, specific you know, milestones and um, deadlines and uh, and phases and what have you, and they would they would liaise with the business units uh, that would commercialize or market uh, or sell uh, the the game. So we're talking about about very big teams, and that's uh, why sometimes we make distinctions between what we call indie and AAA games. So there are publishers that can afford having all these things, and they're like they're the Hollywood type of. Uh, uh, of uh, of actors in the gaming industry, and there are indies. So an indie game uh, would be produced by an independent uh, studio or a small number of individuals. And this is, you know, all the games in the blockchain world.
I guess. Um, I spoke about mechanics. So the mechanics of a gameplay is a very, very important thing because it defines all the rules and procedures that guide the player. Uh, and they also dictate what the game responses to the player's moves or actions can be. An interesting thought here is that many games, most of the games that we have today, in order to not confuse the player or not um, create a steep learning curve for a new player, they try to adhere to the laws of physics. So, you know, when, when, when you leave an object in the game, it will fall down, uh, you know, pulled by gravity as it would in the uh, physical world. However, you, you understand, of course, that there is no reason for this to happen. In the digital world, we are free from all these constraints. So in the metaverse uh, sphere, I would expect that we would see some very original or experimental modalities uh, regarding game uh, mechanics or world function mechanics where uh, the, 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 the world would not necessarily uh, work like it does in the physical world. So we might, you know, free ourselves from, from the limitations of the physical world in, in these environments. Uh, another important aspect is creating uh, assets. And here you would need to have access to quite sophisticated uh, software for 3D modeling, uh, either to create uh, characters like, like you see in the picture uh, in the top of the screen, uh, which is, I think, from Blender, one of the softwares, uh, the, 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 the open source uh, type of software for 3D modeling, uh, or creating, you know, the details like the rust and the scratches in the in the machine gun that you see in the in the image below, which is from another um, software, I think, is from uh, 3D Studio Max. So you would need to have all these things to create assets. And here, I'm still talking about design, creating the assets. You would need to enrich the assets that come from your uh, 3D modeling software, and you usually start from some sort of uh, mathematical polygonal type of, uh, of structure to create and add texture and details and lightning and, and stuff like that uh, on top of this. And all this work is still to create the uh, asset itself, which could be part of the virtual world, could be uh, a playing character, it would be uh, a non-playing character within a game, it could be a weapon or a, a shield or a uniform or uh, you name it and has nothing to do with the actual gameplay and ownership and uh, transferability and uh, where you would be able to find and how you would be able to sell or swap or, or trade these types of assets. So the learning outcome here is that creating a sophisticated competitive game is a very, very competitive um, process. There, is, there are a number of game engines, so there are a number of software environments that uh, can be used to allow game designers to bring everything together. So 3D modeling, gameplay mechanics, uh, asset creation, uh, interaction between 
players and non-playing characters and so on. Examples are uh, Unreal Engine or Unity or Cry Engine that you see uh, here in this slide. And there's also a huge um, body of work in developing uh, standardized uh, uh, libraries for APIs and software interfaces for either uh, 3D graphics processing hardware, like your GPUs in your computer, uh, like OpenGL and WebGL, or more proprietary types of uh, APIs like DirectX by Microsoft uh, for those that are programming games on Microsoft platforms. Now, having said all this, and I understand that this is a very, very quick and, and shallow uh, uh, introduction to, to the technologies and processes around game creation, I would like to focus the remainder of our time on, on what we're interested in today is like, what happens when the technology of blockchain, when cryptocurrency, when fungible tokens and non-fungible tokens and NFTs meet uh, gaming? How might we see the future of gaming through this through this lens? And as I've said in the beginning, I think that there are three major um, types of uh, implications that blockchain will have uh, in gaming blockchain being um, you know a technology that allows for value uh, creation storage and transfer over computer networks i think it will have a substantial uh, effect on, on on gaming because it will provide a much needed layer for storing and transferring value in gaming and I think there are three things there. One is asset ownership. So who owns the assets uh, in a game? There's this famous story that uh, Vitalik Buterin thought of and conceptualized Ethereum when, uh, I don't remember which game he was playing, uh, but they, they uh, deprived him of one of the uh, weapons or uh, seals that uh, he had managed to uh, to, uh, to earn by playing the game. And he realized that, you know, although he thought that because this was in his inventory, it was his, it was actually not. There was not, there's no real ownership of your character, your avatar, your assets, your weaponry or whatever, when you're playing a game. Everything is being controlled centrally by the game provider. So if they want, they can, uh, uh, they can throw you out of the game. They can, uh, you know, uh, 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 block your account or they can uh, deprive you of any asset that you might have had. So blockchain will, will change all that because it would allow people to actually really own their assets uh, that they use in the games. And when I say really own, I mean they would have the ability to not only trade them with other users, but also do that and many other things outside of the game. So when you are, when you have the asset in your wallet as an NFT, you might use it in this uh, particular game, but the asset becomes also interoperable. It, it can be used in other things. So for example, many of you have minted the course access token for Unique. This is a 
token that you'd give you access to some of the material for the course and certainly the, 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 the exams. So it's a token that has utility within the ecosystem of this course, but nothing stops someone from creating some other experience, which could be educational, a game or what have you, and have this experience token-gated, controlled, and, and affected by the ownership of this token. So have create something that is accessible only by people who happen to have this asset on their uh, wallets. So assets become more important than the games themselves. I don't know how many of you are uh, familiar with uh, projects like uh, Loot for Adventurers or the N project in, in the NFT um, space, but both these projects and many others have started, have flipped the idea of a game um, uh, on its head and, and they said, why should we create a game and have assets only within this game and not create the assets first, so create a set of, I don't know, weaponry and uh, and and, uh, and shields and uh, shoes and uh, helmets and so on with different powers and different degrees of rarity and aesthetics and so on and let everyone use the collection of this. This becomes an NFT collection of assets in the games or arts or, or experiences that they create. So we're talking about a, a wholly different perspective on how uh, we view games if we have blockchain-enabled NFTs as assets in them. And the final um, like uh, effect of, of uh, blockchain into gaming is the ability to create in-game and sometimes, hopefully in the future, across game economies. So create whole economic structures with uh, supply and demand dynamics in which value is distributed to users and controlled by the users within the game and not monopolized by the platform creating the game itself. Uh, so again, NFTs allow for true digital ownership of, of game assets. So if, if you hold your character or avatar as an NFT, you are the real owner. It cannot be taken away from you. Uh, any asset that you buy or you collect while playing the game can also be an NFT. And then you can swap or trade with other players without any intermediaries and without any possible censorship by the game owner. And they can also exist, as I've said, outside the game as independent entities that might have other uses or internal value. So, the collection of these four properties that, that you see in this uh, slide create a revolutionary, I would dare say, environment on how assets in games can be uh, thought of that was simply not possible in the pre-blockchain world, even in the MMORPG era. This has created a number of experiments. Um, one of them that I'd like to spend a few minutes discussing because it has uh, received uh, quite some attention by the community, at least the blockchain community, uh, is the so-called play-to-earn games. So as the name suggests, these, these are games in which the economics uh, 
go to, to the next level because they allow their players to play the game for some sort of financial gain, not uh, uh, in, in the sense of, you know, gaining from other players. So like, I don't know, betting and battling and, you know, whoever wins takes the money and, and wins the bet, but in the sense of creating, adding value, creating new value that is created by playing the game itself. Uh, there are typically two broad categories, those that are called free-to-play games, so that you can start playing the game for free, although if you do that, you most probably will be limited in your ability to, 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 to gain money from playing it, or the so-called pay-to-play games, in the sense that users will need to be equipped by some sort of NFT, so you will need to get an avatar or weapons or uh, your shoes or whatever, uh, so you need to buy NFTs, you need to invest in the game in the beginning. And once you've made that investment, uh, depending on how good you are in the game and how uh, powerful or rare the properties of your NFTs are, uh, you might earn money, uh, usually in the form of some digital token, which has fluctuating value. So, you know, um, the the whether these games would be able to create sustaining economies is a different question that we're going to see um, in a while. Uh, typically, in such games, the players will be able to create or breed new characters. So you would be able to, you know, to literally breed your characters and create new ones that you can either use for playing or sell in the marketplace. You would be able to purchase items either within the game or in third-party marketplaces, and you would typically be able to unlock or earn additional uh, digital assets or tokens by playing the game, depending on you know how long you play it or how good you are at it, and so on. Uh, the archetypal, archetypal example here is Axie Infinity. I'm not going to spend um, so much time on it because I think it's, it's, uh, it's old news now, but I don't think any discussion about uh, play to earn uh, would be complete without discussing. Uh, Axie, because it was the first game that became hugely successful. I mean, at some point uh, a year or a year and a half ago, there were, you know, lots of people, especially in countries like the Philippines, where uh, it was extremely popular, that were actually, you know, doing it as their job. They were making money by playing the game. What is typical about Axie is that they, it, it pioneered this dual token structure. So these, these, these games usually have more than one types of tokens. So they have both fungible and non-fungible tokens. And the fungible tokens usually are split between uh, a governance token. Uh, in, in the case of uh, Axie Infinity, it's the AXS, the Axie Infinity Shards token and a utility token, in the case of Axia called Smooth Love, Smooth, I thought it was small. Anyway, Smooth or Small Love Potion, uh, the SLP token, which is the reward token or the utility token that, that people would earn. Uh, and there's also NFT tokens in the, in the case of Axia, the, the playing characters are NFTs, the Axias themselves, as well as uh, tokenized lots of land that act as homes or basis of uh, operation for the activity. The game is about you know battling with uh, with other opponents, uh, your access against them. So it's a mostly a card based um, uh, game in which players play in turns. It's not very 
interactive. Uh, there are a number of games that uh, have been developed following or on same or similar ideas. I have just some indicative examples here. So Alien Worlds or Galaxy Fight Club or Gods Unchained, they are, I would dare say, and forgive me because it's a very simplistic type of description and maybe unfair to them, uh, they are uh, advanced versions of Axie Infinity in the sense that they follow uh, a similar trajectory in terms of uh, uh, creating environments in which uh, characters fight or battle uh, each other and players you know, might make money if they um, uh, win against their opponents. Uh, a different sub genre is the one in the uh, in the in the bottom uh, projects like Stepping or Genopets, which are what we would call move to earn um, games, in the sense that they would reward users uh, for their uh, daily movements. So the more that you walk or run, or uh, okay, in the case of Genopets, it's much more complicated because you have a this this virtual pet. So on top of you know banking steps, you might uh, do other things. It's a, it's more move to earn and play to earn type of, of game, uh, but all of them or most of them have the same basic underlying economic structure in the sense that there are a number of NFTs. So in the Galaxy Fight Club, you have your uh, uh, your your uh, fighter, and you have weapons that this fighter is equipped to, and depending on you know. Uh, what type of fighter or what type of weapon you might have different abilities in battle. And so the outcome of the game would be a combination of your skills combined with um, the, the, the types of assets that you own. In the case of stepping, how much money you would make would depend on a combination of factors uh, like you know what type of uh, uh, shoe you have. So this is an NFT what type of added uh, properties uh, uh, you, you have equipped these shoe uh, with, and different shoes have different properties, and these properties have different values. So for different uses, there are different optimal configurations of, uh, of your shoes. So quite complicated, but at the same time, this uh, complication might you know, increase the, 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 the joy or the, the, the satisfaction that users get uh, by playing the game. So these types of games uh, exist today, but I would like to emphasize that we are still extremely early in the NFT gaming phenomenon. Not only in play to earn games, but generally. And I, I said earlier that we, we sometimes tend to be unfair to the people that create are creating these games because we we compare them with you know uh, huge uh, uh, conglomerates that uh, have been hugely successful in monetizing web two types of games. Uh, but these people are startups that are trying to redefine an industry, uh, and it has proven to be very challenging to create a self-sustaining uh, in-game economy. So as I've said, most of the projects are using a dual layer structure, so both fungible tokens and NFTs, and a multi-token structure within each layer. So you might have a governance and a utility token and multiple NFTs. Um, but 
I have yet to see a successful uh, token economics mechanism. So if you uh, if you witness most of the projects, they they follow a trajectory in which uh, at least their utility token, if it doesn't have enough utility, uh, it tends to to uh, to fall in value because people would sell it if they have nothing to do uh, with it within the game, uh, and this of course creates a selling pressure that that uh, combined with the infinite supply of utility tokens that most projects uh, would follow uh, will result in a in a death spiral for for the price of the token. Uh, it is interesting because some analysts go as far as claiming that the play to earn uh, movement itself is not sustainable because giving monetary rewards may prove to be bad for player retention because it weakens the internal uh, motivation that players would have by playing the game. I'm not sure I subscribe to this line of thought. I think there's a very huge incentive uh, for people to, to play games uh, uh, for some monetary game, uh, gain. And, you know, if, if we are... Um, if we are if we are true believers in our conviction that Web three is about uh, taking value from the platforms and uh, giving it to the users, then you know all these billions that we discussed earlier uh, being made today by the gaming industry and being shared by a small group of you know companies that control it uh, will 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 uh, you know flow through to 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 the end users. If and when we start fighting, finding uh, self-sustainable economic models uh, for that, a more fair criticism is that most games today seem to emphasize the tokenomics, what I've discussed uh, earlier, more than game design. But we have to understand that for game design on blockchain, we have huge technical challenges, uh, which at the moment prevent us from creating 100% decentralized games. Remember the metaphor I used earlier, we are in the early days of the internet. So as the first popular games in the internet era were months, there were uh, games that allowed many people to play together, but they were text-based or, or storyboarded because you couldn't have sophisticated graphics in the primitive internet infrastructure. We have the same thing here. We have blockchains that are very slow. Transactions are public, so you cannot have a, a real-time game. You cannot have a game in which, you know, if I do something and this something creates a transaction, the blockchain, and this is published, you know, 12 seconds ago in a, uh, later in Ethereum, then my character will uh, wait for 12 seconds before, you know, it fires a bullet out of their weapon. This is... A, a very bad user experience. So we need to solve these technical problems, but I'm not worried. Technical problems like it happened in the early days of the internet, and many people thought back then that this would be, you know, the lack of speed or security or whatever would be something that would uh, uh, condemn internet to, to oblivion. And of course, it didn't happen. I'm sure that the technical challenges will be solved. In the meantime, we will be looking at games that are only partially decentralized. And when I say partially, I mean the characters, the avatars, and the assets are decentralized. They exist on public blockchains and they are truly owned by the 
uh, players, but the gameplay mechanics are still centralized and they happen on, on centralized servers. So, concluding uh, this, uh, this session, uh, I would like to just emphasize four points. Number one is that gaming is huge. And if gaming moves to blockchain en mass, so this will prove to be a killer application for NFTs. I know that uh, with 6529 you've discussed a lot about art and generative art and uh, PFPs and all these things, and these are all fine applications, but I think gaming is going to prove to be one of the killer applications of NFTs, and of course uh, PFP collections and even generative and stuff like that have a huge role to play within um, gaming. The second takeaway is I think that blockchain will act as the value layer in games, providing three things. One is true ownership of assets by users. Number two, interoperability of assets, so the ability to move assets uh, across games. And number three, creating sustainable in-game and across-game uh, economies. Takeaway number three, there are still significant challenges to be overcome. Many of them are technological and design-oriented. We still haven't figured ways in which we, um, we can move uh, game mechanics to the blockchain. Uh, and some challenges are economic. We still haven't managed to find the perfect balance between you know, governance, utility, and non-fungible tokens uh, to create a, you know, a self-sustaining uh, economy within a game. Finally, Keep in mind, and we'll discuss this uh, next week with 6529 in more detail, that games can be thought of as early examples of, of metaverses and may yet prove to be the application type through which most people will have their first uh, Web3 exposure. As always, we have some further reading for you. And uh, this concludes the slides for, for this week. Uh, if you have questions, let me move to Discord. I mean, as, as usual, as you can see uh, in the screen, you can ask your questions in the OM chat or on Twitter using the NFT Q&A hashtag. Um, uh, my colleagues will probably have already started feeding questions on Discord for me, so let me switch and see if I can find them there. And... Uh, I have my colleague uh, Chris Christou from uh, the Unique uh, Virtual Reality Lab with me. So in case there are questions that are more technical, because as I've said, I don't come from a, from a gaming uh, background, I might call him to, to join me in, in answering them. So let me see. Uh, so there's one question that says, is it actually sustainable... Uh, to release a token for a game that can be exchanged for fiat. Well, that's that's you know that's the that's a million dollar question. It certainly certainly this is the case. We have it is proven by the gaming industry that people there's lots of people out there. There's a big market for gaming, so there's lots of people that would actually be able to you know open their wallet and and pay money to to play a game. They pay literally billions every year to, to play games. Whether this could translate 
in a sustainable mechanism through which that money flows into an in-game economy uh, in blockchain and allows that value to be multiplied between the users of that economy and somehow shared between those that uh, create the game, those that play the game, and those that provide the foundational infrastructure for security and scalability, so the underlying blockchain, this is something to 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 get. Uh, we need we need we need to to see how this would happen. Uh, I have to say that out of the examples that I showed you earlier and all the others that I've seen in the NFT gaming space, this hasn't happened yet, and I think it has happened for two reasons. One is that there hasn't been a game yet that would attract people for the intrinsic motivation. There have not been games like, I don't know, Minecraft or Roblox or uh, World of Warcraft or all the other games that have managed to create communities of millions of people that want to play the game for the sheer pleasure of playing the game and even pay to play that game. Here, we have mostly seen people that come like kamikazes, you know, getting into the game to make a quick gain out of it. And this mentality does not help the community of, a, of any particular game to, to create a lasting... Uh, we games uh, option that is more organic and less people that play the game because they like it and they're not ready to, to leave it to go to the next game because they would make more money uh, in the short term out of it. I'm not saying, and it's not necessarily I see myself. Uh, oops. Some sort of internet. Let me know. Okay, switch. Uh, okay, I will continue. Saying that, you know, uh, they will not do it. Maybe it's a process. Some of the games that we've seen uh, become useful for a limited or longer amount of time, like Axie Infinity or Stepping, might make it, might go through, you know, so it went up and they went down, and now they will go up and they will find, you know, an equilibrium. But I think to answer your question, that um, we will see games and we will see games very soon that uh, uh, people would be willing to use their tokens inside the game, sell it outside the game for fiat, and there will be a, a, a thriving, you know, demand. Yeah. Uh, and is overcoming the speed of blockchain transactions. Uh, blockchain scalability is is, is a challenging uh, thing. 
I mean, I've been in blockchain since the very beginning. You know, Satoshi chose a 10-minute interval between blocks in uh, in the Bitcoin blockchain because it wouldn't, it wasn't uh, possible to propagate transactions in the network in, uh, in 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 a less amount of time so that all miners and nodes would know of the latest block and and would be able to start working the next one when the previous one was mined so the bitcoin blockchain had and still has a 10 minute interval between um uh between blocks now moved to we have a 12 interval between uh, blocks. So in 10 years time, because Bitcoin started in 2009, we're now 2022, so 13 years time, we have gone from 10 minutes to 12 seconds. And there's all sorts of solutions for uh, scaling that further. And new technologies are coming all the time. Uh, either for layer twos like optimistic rollups or uh, zero knowledge snarks or or other ways or for layer ones that have much much less uh, um, demands in terms of uh, space or computing power or uh, synchronization of nodes uh, and so on so i'm sure that in the future, this problem will be solved. But for the time being, because games need a near instantaneous uh, type of reaction. So when I when I have a shooting game and you fire a weapon, it's the bullet to go out, hit its target or not hit its target and, and do whatever it will do instantaneously. I cannot wait 12 seconds. I cannot even wait two seconds for the experience would be uh, detrimental so my personal six times of game the first types of games that we will see uh, becoming not going to be like game huge requirements in terms of speed that's why we're seeing you know card based games in which players play in turns so there's no real time interaction we see the move to earn type of uh, you get running or stepping or uh, or whatever because these things do not have with uh, and and real time interaction requirements it will probably be a few years before we start seeing the migration uh, of uh, of interactive games to the block today uh, I have said, wait until the holographic technology comes out and then games will be the ultimate experience. Uh, that's very interesting and I think I will um, uh, I will answer this question then we can probably wrap this up. Uh, in the computer science world, there have been two technologies that uh, have, have, how can I say it, have invited the, the ridicule of researchers in different points in time. One was artificial intelligence that started in the late 60s with lots of fanfare and you know expectations, never managed to um, uh, to deliver much until the uh, 
the, the discovery of uh, neural networks and deep learning a few years ago, and suddenly we have a revolution. The other technology is virtually everything that has to do with virtualization of reality around us, either pure virtual reality or augmented reality, has up to now more hyper than reality. So to address the student's comment, I will, yes, I agree. If and when we see holographic uh, uh, technologies uh, come out or um, uh, uh, be too heavy and difficult to use and will not have a huge latency and I will not get dizzy after using them for 10 minutes or whatever, yes, there's huge potential for virtual reality and all sorts of extended um, uh, when this happen. We'll discuss all these in a couple of weeks because we have a dedicated session in trends in uh, visualization technology. I think Chris will have a lot to, uh, to say then, but until the time that these technologies become really, um, uh, let's say, uh, come to, to, to a standard in which they can be commercially deployed uh, for the mass market, need some time. So uh, we'll see. Uh, another question is: What incentive do current game designers have to explore or adopt blockchain in their games? Don't they currently benefit from their centralized approach? The answer is a clear yes, uh, but that has never stopped the world progressing. It's you know heard this argument time and again and says, uh, you know, what incentive does Kodak have to invest in digital photography? Don't they profit from, uh, you know, analog photography? The answer is yes, they did profit, but some competitor will disrupt them and will, if they do not adapt to the new technologies, they will die. So for the studios and the game designers and the big technology companies uh, that decide now it should me more to have a centralized approach so i'm not going to be looking at blockchain as, a, as an alternative they might be lucky and blockchain never makes it but if it does you know in 10 years time many of the household names that uh, we know today uh, will be in history like uh, like kodak or fuji are in the analog business and they are not uh, they will be substituted by others so I think this concludes uh, today's uh, lecture. Thank you very much for, for being uh, with us. Next week, we'll have uh, 6, 5 to 9 uh, discussing uh, the metaverse. Thank you very much for being here and see you next week. Bye-bye.